with me as we read. Reading from Ephesians four seventeen through 32. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in truth, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from among you and put away from you among, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The word of the Lord. I absolutely hate snakes. Uh, Always have. Recently in my backyard, I had the tremendous pleasure of actually killing one. I stomped so hard on its head in the back patio, and then I left it there to rot in the sun. As a message to all other snakes in the Shores subdivision of what will happen to you if you come in my yard. I've got things to protect now. I've got a little boy that loves the grass. I don't like that, being, that space being a threat. And as I thought about that uh, and relished in that joy, I thought to myself, man, it would have been so wonderful if Adam would have done the same thing. How simple it would have been. It was really not that hard to step on it. And you think about the fact of all the pain and sadness that it would have saved us. All the brokenness and tragedies of the world come down to one act that was never done. What a tragedy that was. And I thought to myself, if I could just go back, I would have loved to have done it myself. Something so simple, left undone. I think one of the things Paul is telling us in Ephesians is, well, you actually can do that. You can. You can crush the serpent. But to understand what he's saying, you have to recognize some tension that he kind of brings up that makes us have to ask the question in the first place. 
In Ephesians 1, you have Jesus, who's, it's said that he's seated, seated at the right hand of the Father. All authority, all power, all dominion has been given to him, has been, has been handed over to him, and all things are in subjection to him, and his enemies are under his feet. It's a great spot to be in. It's victorious. But then you have in Ephesians 6, in the last, in the last chapter, where Paul says, you better get dressed for battle and put the armor of God on. Because you are in a war. You are in a fight. If you don't think you are, you are picking daisies on a battlefield. It's going to catch up with you sooner or later. So how do we resolve this picture of Jesus being victorious over all things and having won a victory that is certain, and yet we actually are called to dress for battle? I think he wants to change our perspectives of who we are as Christians. I think what he's telling us is that in Christ, we now have the opportunity to do what our first father, Adam, could never, ever do. And because of Christ and his life in us, we can now crush the head of the serpent, when before we never could. And if you think about it for a second, if that's true, your life has tremendous cosmic significance. Tremendous purpose. And doesn't that sound good? To live your days knowing that your life is bigger than, than, than your homes and your cities and this community and this nation and this world, your, your value is wrapped up in a cosmic reality. And to feel the concreteness of an of a eternal purpose in your life. Paul says that is true of you. It's as true of you as the air you breathe, but to understand it, it requires a dramatic shift in who you think you are and what you should do. Something deep within you has to radically change. And he begins by helping us understand, by reminding us what we're called out of. He says in verse 17 through 24, he begins to draw us out of what we've been called, he begins to remind us of what we've been called out of. He says, no longer live as the Gentiles do. No longer live as those who are living apart from the promises of God in Christ, who live outside of God's covenant promises in Jesus, who give no thought or mind to God. And he describes that way of life in some harsh terms, some very harsh terms, two of which we'll look at when he says that they have lived by a hardness of heart and they live out of the futility of their minds. And anytime the scriptures use hardness of heart, it always talks about this idea of being given over to something that destroys you because you crave it. You want it. A hardened heart craves that which destroys it and defiles it, and no matter how guilty or empty or sad or sorrowful it makes you feel, you just can't get enough of it. You want more. You keep coming back to it. And ultimately, this hardness of heart leads to a futility of mind because somehow you trick yourself into thinking that if I could just get more of it, then I'll be satisfied. If I get more of it, then I will have arrived. If I could just get this or get that, then life will be okay. Higher tax bracket, bigger house. If I could get a promotion, if my kids would just act a certain way, my spouse would act a certain way, everything would be fine. But the reality of the sadness of the futility of mind is that it ultimately points to something that will never satisfy. And it still thinks that it will. I was watching a CNN special this week, and uh, it was on uh, a new pandemic that is absolutely in uh, a nationwide pandemic in the suburbs, in paradise. Because now, in the suburbs, it is one of the highest places for drug overdoses on opiates. Oxycodone, hydrocodone, 
If you're not aware of what those are, those are painkillers. Basically, they took heroin, put it in a pill form, and that's what they prescribe you. And it is at such a rampant, it's being consumed at a, at a staggering level. And one uh, councilman in the city of Chicago, whose, his, whose district is in a suburban area, said that once every, one person every three days dies from an overdose to opiates. One person every three days. Imagine somebody dying once every three days in Rockwall because of a drug overdose. That's a staggering fact. That's a staggering statistic. But if you, the, the real issue, though, is where it's happening. It's happening in the suburbs. It's happening in the places that people work so hard to finally arrive at. The suburbs are the places that makes promises that if you can just get your kids in the right schools and be in the right neighborhood, you can coast the rest of your life, man. There's no pain or sadness here. It's a place where people try to get to and establish themselves. And the sadness is, is that once people get it, they realize they don't want it. Where else are you going to go when the one place you wanted to go to satisfy yourself doesn't work? And they're filled with sadness, and so we, we find this drug addiction that's rampant. So I think Paul would say that that is a picture of futility. To somehow take all of your desires and the eternity that you were created with and to somehow place it on, into something in this world. And then when you're dissatisfied, you turn to something else to cover it, to make it better, to get through the day. Paul would ultimately say that to live as a Gentile apart from the life of God is hopeless because you're using temporary things to satisfy the eternal cravings of your heart. He's saying you're drinking from an empty cup and you're chasing the wind. And that's sad. And Paul is saying, well, that was your story. That was your story. But that's not the way you learned Christ. Because Jesus interrupted the meaninglessness and purposelessness of our futile minds and our futile thoughts and expectations. And he takes us off that hamster wheel of a Gentile lifestyle and he sets us on a new course. He says, you belong to me now. And he gives us a whole new life and a whole new purpose that's cosmic in scope. Paul is reminding you what you have been called out of and what you have been called to because Christ has interrupted your story. But to understand that significance and to understand that cosmic purpose that we have been given, it requires that we have to, we have to change how we view ourselves, which is why in verses 22 and 24, Paul takes some time to talk about what goes on within us. He talks about the old self that needs to be put away and the new self that needs to be put on. What's he mean here with this old self, new self language? If you understand Paul, he says in multiple places, uh, Romans and in Corinthians and here, it's not just here, but it's a part of how he views us as Christians, as believers, is that within us, there's both the new self and old self. The old self looks like Adam, walks like Adam, talks like Adam. He chooses his own way all the time, rejects God and rejects others, and all he does is create more brokenness. And he thinks everything is okay. But the new man in us, the new self, is actually the part that the Spirit comes and revives and gives new life the place where uh, the creator God dwells with you and is restoring and renewing you into the image of our Savior Jesus, making you look more like him and slowly chiseling away until you and him are unified. That's how Paul sees you, these two warring realities within you. And so on the day-to-day, maybe it looks like this. You know, I really want deep community in my church. 
But deep down, I just have a really hard time in a social situation if I'm not the center of attention. Where I really want to be generous, and I've always wanted to be a cheerful giver because I see how much people in need, just that to receive a generous gift, how much it means. But I just cannot stay off of Amazon, buying every new thing that I see. Or I want to grow closer with Jesus, but I can't put down the remote and give him five minutes. I want to grow closer with Jesus, but I just really don't like to be around people. Or I want to be free and know that freedom in Christ, but I just can't imagine life without my addiction. I just can't let it go. And perhaps as we describe the Gentile lifestyle, and as Paul describes the Gentile lifestyle, he always does it in harsh terms. He's not pretending it's something that it's not. But the hard thing is that when we listen to that, maybe you thought for a second, that sounds a lot more like my life than I want to admit. That sounds pretty close to home in some ways that are hard for me to swallow. And the good news is, is Paul would say, of course it does. That's why I brought it up to you, so that you might be aware of what it is that's happening within you. Because I think Paul would make it very certain that you cannot ultimately participate in Christ's victory and in his purposes and experience the life of God that you were meant to until you recognize the war that is happening within you, which means that the cosmic battle isn't somewhere way out there in the universe or in India or the front lines of the mission field. The cosmic battle is in you. You are the battleground by which this war takes place. And Paul wants that old self to die and wants that new man and new woman to come alive. And he says the way that we do that is to put on Christ. It's an odd saying. Well, actually, in this passage, he says, that's not the way you learned Christ. It's not the way you learned, not facts about Jesus, but that's not the way you learned the person, Jesus. And then he says to put on the new self, and the language that he uses is very similar when he says in Corinthians to put on Christ. It's very strange language. And the closest analogy I could come up with is the idea of method acting. If you're not familiar with method acting, perhaps one of the most famous cases is in recent years whenever uh, Heath Ledger played the Joker in The Dark Knight. It's the second one, right? Dark Knight? Yeah. He played the Joker. And nobody really expected when they started to film and everybody gathers and they're ready to go. Heath Ledger actually shows up as the Joker in costume, in character. And everybody's like, okay, haha, you know, he shows up, but he was actually acting like the Joker. Changed everything. Everybody had to re- change the way they related to him. Then they'd film, and he'd be in character, of course. And then once they said cut and stopped filming, he would still not leave the character of the Joker. He was that way for months. Call him at three in the morning, and he'd answer the phone as the Joker. He would never come out of character. And it changed the whole dynamic of the set. It changed the whole dynamic of the film. I think Paul is telling us something similar, that you have to become something completely new. That to put on Christ is to do it 24-7. Not to find a couple of five minutes here or there to do it, but to truly understand this new person that you are called to be, you have to completely become something else by embodying Jesus, by looking like him, talking like him, walking like him, and never coming out of character. That is Paul's vision for what he wants for us. But he goes a little bit further in verse 25, and he begins to add a new layer to what it looks like to actually put on this new self. 
In verse 25, he transitions. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, putting, putting away that which destroys and the deceitful desires of the old self, let us now speak the truth with our neighbor because we are members of one another. That's a radical statement if you stop and think about it. If you look around here this morning, when you see everyone here and when we fellowship this morning, do you think of, to yourself, we are members of one another? You belong to me and I belong to you. Does that season your words that you use with each other? It's a radical statement, and I think what Paul is trying to say, that for you to actually understand the new man and how he comes to life, we simply cannot put on the new man and learn Christ apart from one another. We can't do it. Growing closer with Jesus, it's a good thing that we stop and we have personal Bible reading and personal book reading and and knowledge-seeking. But for Paul, that's the 101 class, man. That's not going to get you very far until you learn to take that and bring it into the life of this community. And he would say that we can't learn Christ apart from one another, which means ultimately that I need you in my life. I need this church. You need me in your life, just even as brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we are members of one another, and for me to know Christ means I need you. Which I think if we take it seriously this morning, my friends, you desperately need this church. We, we desperately need this church. And this church desperately needs you. And what more beautiful statement could be said of the church than that? That among us, in our life together, this is where Christ comes to life. And we put him on. And after we see this perspective that the new self comes to life within the community, Paul then kind of shifts gears in verses 26 to 29 and begins to talk about uh, three different uh, examples of how we put away the old self and put on the new self. He says, be angry and don't sin, not giving the devil an opportunity. He also says, uh, uh, let the thief no longer steal, but work with your own hands to help others in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but now let your words no longer be used to tear down, but to build up. And so now we have this perspective that who we are now is supposed to be outward focused rather than inward focused. Your concerns become top priority over mine. But if you actually kind of look at these examples, you kind of want to ask Paul, you know, Paul, you're trying to you know, say this, there's this big cosmic battle going on, and then kind of the way we put on this new self and reject the old is by, you know, dealing with anger properly, not stealing, and not talking bad about each other. It hardly seems like examples for how a cosmic battle is fought. And I really think Paul would say, uh, you're, you're misunderstanding me. These are actually the most important places that we should look. Because it's in these seemingly insignificant places where the enemy actually does his greatest work and his greatest damage. And I bring up these examples because if you want to engage in this cosmic battle and put on Christ's victory, this is where you'll find the enemy. My grandfather was, uh, uh, in 1943, he um, uh, enlisted in the army in the middle of World War II. He went with his best friend. They signed up for the Corps of Engineers. You know, Corps of Engineers are here, and then the battle's over here. So that's where they wanted to be. And he was a good mechanic, and so he applied for, uh, you know, he tried to enroll in the Corps of Engineers, and his best friend got the Corps of Engineers, and he got the infantry. My grandfather would always say, uh, he told my dad when uh, he enlisted in Vietnam, he said, uh, 
make sure you do everything you can to not go into the infantry. Because when you're in the infantry, everybody's shooting at you. And he realized that uh, in his very first battle experience. He actually said his first battle experience was one of the worst firefights he'd ever been in. He was on the front lines, and the Germans were attacking them and trying to hit, and the Germans were hitting them with everything they had, wave after wave after wave. And the the Allies were about to break. The front lines were about to collapse because they couldn't hold off the Germans anymore. And they'd actually pushed so close to their front lines, they had only one choice, which was to call the artillery in on top of themselves. The only way they could hold the line is to call bombs in on top of themselves and hope they make it. And they knew the Germans were close, but they didn't know how close until the bombs started to drop. Because my grandfather said that all of them started jumping in foxholes, which is a little, you know, three, four-foot-wide hole that they would use and dig in battlefields to take cover. And so my grandfather uh, dove into the foxhole as the bombs were dropping, and he said he realized how close the enemy was because when the bombs started to hit, the Germans started to jump in the foxholes with him. And it's too small of a space to use guns, and so their only hope was to fight hand-to-hand combat. So his first battle experience was hand-to-hand combat. I think Paul is telling us that to understand the nature of this battle we're in, the enemy jumps down into the most insignificant places, the places you least expect, the places you don't expect to find them, and it's there where the most vicious, gruesome battles are fought. He wants to change your perspective. Because when the enemy jumps down into the foxhole with you, that old self in you wants to embrace him and steal his uniform and put it on. But the new man in you, when he clothes in Christ, goes to war and fights back. Paul says that we have to be aware of the old self and the new self in us because that old self longs to follow the deceiver, loves his lies, loves his clothes. If we step back and look at these three examples, you can see that within these three examples, these are three examples that actually kill community. If Paul's focus wants us to be on understanding that we are members of one another, then these three examples are powerful in the life of any community to destroy it. Now, within these examples are the seeds of our own destruction. To take anger and not to let go of it. To, not, to actually let the sun go down on my anger and to stew about something you said to me all night long. And to pick it up the next morning in anger. Or to steal from you and expect you to trust me. Or to find out that I've been saying harsh things about you behind your back. That kills community. Haven't we all experienced that? Nobody leaves the church because they don't like a worship style. They just go pick another one. People leave the church and reject it because of the pain and sadness that we bring into it because we're unaware of how the old self works and we're unwilling to put them away. But at the same time, Paul would say that within these examples is not just the seeds of our community's destruction, it's also the seeds of how we flourish and how the new man a new woman come to life in us. And if we look at just one of these examples this morning, I'd look at verse 26, which I think if we understand that, we'll understand the rest. It says, be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. Now notice Paul does not say, uh, hey, don't get angry. Christians aren't supposed to get angry. We're nice folk. We're polite. Life's too short. Get over it. Pick yourself up. 
That's what happens. Life's too short. Move on. Get over it. Swallow it. Doesn't say any of that, does he? He actually gives you a big invitation. Be angry, but don't sin. But don't sin. I think Paul is expressing to us that both the old man and new man, the old woman and the new woman in us, is going to get angry. Why? Because you live in an incredibly broken world that doesn't want you to flourish and doesn't care about you whatsoever. We live in a world where you're going to be backstabbed and betrayed. You're going to be hurt. You're going to be wounded. You're going to be belittled. You're going to be made to feel small and insignificant. That's the world we live in. And so, of course, when those things happen to us, we get angry and frustrated because we know deep down that's not, we were made for so much more than this broken world that we live in. And so, of course, we get angry, especially when we're made to feel small and unvalued and insignificant. And this morning, I probably, as we think about anger, um, you know, we, we've talked a lot about anger here at Rockwell Press. I think Paul is helping us understand why a little bit more today. Because I know some of us want to say, you know, I'm not angry. I don't struggle with anger at all. Anger is not something that really affects me. I don't consider that as something I struggle with. And I think Paul would say to you, be careful, my friend, because that is the confession of the old man. The old man is deceived. The old man believes his own lies. And to understand why that is, you have to recognize how Paul actually views the old self in you, the power that pulls you away from God. Well, he would say that it looks like Adam. It's dead in his trespasses and sins. It does the same thing he does. And what's the first expression, if you go back to Genesis 3, the first expression, the first emotion ever of a sinful man was anger. It was anger. Adam, what have you done? Did you eat the tree I told you not to eat from? It was the woman you gave me that made me do it. It was the woman you gave me. How much hatred is that? How much contempt for God and contempt for Eve do we see in that, in that simple sentence? And anger fills the heart of a broken man and hates God and hates others. And if you want to find the ultimate confession and desire of the old self, then look nowhere than the trial of Jesus, where Jesus stands before the crowds and they yell, crucify him, crucify him. That's what the old self wants. It's for God to be dead and out of my life. That's why whenever we have the Good Friday Tenebrae service, and I always hear year after year, whenever we yell, crucify him, crucify him, kill him, people say, I just want it to stop. I just want it to stop because I want to believe that that type of anger and hatred is not possible in my heart. And Paul would say, if that old self is at work within you and needing to be put away, do not underestimate how much he hates God and wants to destroy God, destroy others. To not be mindful of the old self is dangerous because the old self is is a dangerous person. And ultimately, we won't recognize the damage that it does to us when we're made for so much more. A couple of weeks ago, uh, well, let me open this by saying that uh, nobody ever told me um, that when you have children, there's going to be a day where uh, things change forever, where before when you changed their diaper, everything was going great, and they'd kind of move around a little bit, but not a lot, so it was pretty simple. But then there'd come a day where it was like wrestling a small bear, okay? (laughs) 
I'm in the small bear stage now, all right? We've, we've transitioned. And one night at 3 a.m., Asher wakes me up, and so, you know, I stumble over to the crib, and I pick him up, and I notice that he's wet. He wet himself. His onesie's wet. So I take him over to the changing table, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to try and get this done as fast as I can so he doesn't wake up, and I can get him back down to sleep. But he's ready to go. He is ready to run a marathon. Those little legs are just a kicking, you know, you know, a mile a minute. And he's, he's rolling around trying to grab stuff, just exploring his little world. And as he kept doing this, I was trying to change him and change his diaper, and I felt just this anger rise up in my heart. And I thought to myself, or I actually said out loud, Asher, stop moving. Just angry. And I think we can look at that situation and say, hey, we've all been there. Especially if you're a parent. Of course we have. You've been there. We kind of shrug it off and let it go. I don't beat yourself up. But I think if I asked Paul about that situation, I think he would want me to stop and say, actually, that's the old self. That's the old man right there. And then I began to think about the fact that if I'm not mindful of the old man in that situation in me, then I'm probably not going to be mindful of it the next time. I'm not going to be mindful of it the time after that or the time after that. So the old man just continues to do what he wants when he wants to do it, and I think everything is fine, which made me have to really wrestle with the fact that if I string together a bunch of situations like that over the next 18 years as I raise my son, then I seriously have to wrestle with the fact that my son will be far more raised by the old self within me than the new self in Christ. And that's a tragedy because I push him away, I lose him, I lose me, and I lose Jesus. And that is a tragedy. But if you think about the old self in us and the way that it responds, if it responded to Jesus who loves us perfectly with such anger and resentment, how do you think the old self would want to respond to somebody that actually does betray you, does hurt you, and doesn't really value you? What capacity for anger and and contempt for others is possible when that happens? And if you're not mindful of it, you begin to develop these systems, which is why Paul says to put them away. You develop systems of bitterness and malice and contempt for others. So maybe it looks like, you know, you hanging on to hurtful words for decades because it hurt so bad. And out of those hurtful words, you say, well, it's never good to get close with anybody because relationships just end up in pain and sadness anyways. So it's best just to avoid them altogether. And then when you try and somebody messes up, you're like, well, that's why. You don't get close with people. Or maybe out of insecurity, you can never actually admit that you're wrong. And so if somebody confronts you about something that you did, you actually clothe your insecurity and anger and resentment because you're so afraid to actually be exposed for not being perfect or actually having done something wrong, and you feel as though something deep down within you, you're going to lose power because the old self loves power. Or maybe you're afraid of being alone. You're afraid of being alone, and so you can't help but with every relationship you have, the old self in you wants to consume your friends. And you require so much of them that you push them away. And whenever they start to pull away, you get angry and mad at them for doing that. It's this endless cycle that you can't break. That is the old man at work. That is the power of the old self to take, to never want to stop and say, actually, all that anger and frustration towards others is actually a fact that it's It's really a window into the heart that I don't want to look at because I don't want to see the pain and insecurity and sadness and loneliness and fear and anxiety behind that. Which is why Paul says, 
okay, if you want to actually deal with anger right, stop pretending as though it doesn't exist. If you want to deal with anger in the correct way, we have to be honest, which is why he says be angry, but we've got to learn to put it away. The old man takes anger and navigates the world by it. The new man is honest about it, and he speaks the truth with his neighbor, and he gives it to the Lord. Because the truth is, the old self doesn't, if we are not mindful of the old self, it robs us of others, and it robs us of Jesus. So how does the new man respond? How does the new man respond to a broken world? And what does he do with his anger? I recently uh, watched or read a story. Uh, Jamel McGee was walking down the street one day in uh, Michigan. He had a cop pull up along, alongside him. The cop's name was Andrew Collins. Andrew Collins gets out, pushes him up against a wall, and pats him down. Andrew Collins reaches in his pocket, takes some drugs, and puts it in Jamel McGee's coat, plants drugs on him. And he says, hey, I found drugs on you. I've got to take you in. Jamal says, those aren't mine. He says, I found them on you. So he arrests him. He goes to trial. And Jamel McGee spends four years in prison for a drug charge, wrongfully convicted. He spends four years and he loses everything. His whole life was, fell, fell apart. But it came out a couple of years later that Andrew Collins actually had a knack for actually planting drugs and falsifying reports to up his uh, whatever quota he was trying to meet or whatever position he was trying to express or trying to, to have in the department, he would always plant drugs and make arrests that way. And he finally admitted to it and he said, yeah, I, I have done this. I've done this a lot and all those, all those examples are true. And he ends up spending a year and a half in prison. Whenever Jamel McGee gets out, he actually starts working at a Mosaic Coffee Shop, which is a, co- a halfway house that actually uh, helps convicts, ex-convicts rehabilitate. And Jamel, having lost everything, needed the help, and so he started working at Mosaic Coffee Shop. And as he's working there, things are going well for him. He's getting back on his feet. And then one day he goes to work, and he has a new coworker. It's Andrew Collins, fresh out of prison. And they find themselves by themselves later in that day, and Jamel goes up to Andrew, and he says, I can't believe you did that to me. I can't believe, don't you understand how much you ruined my life? I can't believe you did that to me. How could you do that? What do you possibly have to save for yourself? And Andrew Collins just simply looked at him and said, I have nothing to say. And I have no excuse to give. All I have to say is I am so sorry. I am so, so sorry that I did that to you. And Jamel said when he heard that, something in him broke. That that was what he needed to hear. And then after that, they began to develop a relationship, and they started to take their kids to the zoo together and then to ball games. They developed a deep friendship, and then one day it came, uh, Jamel and Andrew were together, and Jamel just looked over at Andrew and said, You know, brother, you are a dear friend to me, and I love you. I love you. And Andrew Collins said that whenever he heard those words, he said he just wept. He just wept and wept and wept that this person who he'd done so much wrong to could love him back and how much it caused him to love him in return. And the interviewer was actually sitting there with Jamel and Andrew, and he said, Andrew, or he said, Jamel, why did you forgive him? Was it for your sake or was it for Andrew's sake that you forgave him? And Jamel said, neither. It wasn't for my sake and it wasn't for his. He looked at Andrew and he said, 
It was for our sake that I forgave you so that we could have this relationship and we could have each other. It was for our sake. If you consider anyone who has ever had the right to not put away their malice and anger and bitterness because of what was done to him, it was our Savior. The way he was rebelled against and rejected by his creation. But instead, he comes and he takes on flesh and he enters into that brokenness and he actually bears all of our abuse towards him. He takes all of our blows and all of our crowns of thorns and all of the lashings that we deserved but instead gave to him. And he still says, Father, forgive them. The true new man, the new man in Christ in that moment says, forgive them. But he doesn't just do it for himself and he doesn't just do it for us. I think Jesus would say, I did it for our sake so that you might have all of me and I might have all of you. So I think the new man, if we're called out of that, maybe the new man in your life needs to begin to talk differently than the old self. The new self needs to go to someone, and whether it's a spouse, a husband, a wife, a parent, a child, and to say, I am so sorry. There is an old self in me that has tried to destroy you. There's an old self in me that is angry about what you did to me. There's an old self in me that tries to control you and use you for my terms and destroy you. But I know that if I actually don't, if I don't let that old self be put away and die, then I lose you. And if I lose you, then I lose Jesus. So I want to forgive you for our sake. Or to ask for the first time, perhaps, I want you to forgive me for our sake. Because I don't want to lose you, and I don't want to lose Jesus. And my friends, when you say that, I guarantee you, and you can rest assured, that the enemy is flat underneath your feet. This week, the enemy's going to jump in a foxhole with you. I guarantee it. Who will they find? Will they find the old self looking to embrace him? and welcome him? Or will they find the new self clothed in Christ and ready for a fight? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you call this out of the meaninglessness and purposelessness of our own thinking and our own desires. And you've given us new robes of splendor and majesty because we share in your authority and in your power that what is true of you is true of us and what a staggering thought that is. We understand and know that the old self needs to be put off. But I pray, Father, this morning that we would begin to be a people that put away the old self and we begin to be a people that embrace Christ and put him around us and dress ourselves with him. We need your Holy Spirit to do this. We ask this morning as we come forward, the old self would be left behind, and that this bread and this wine would feed the new self in us. We ask all these things in your precious name. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.